Welcome to Social Mental Health. Social Mental Health is a bi-monthly podcast that explores the social stigmas and other barriers to receiving proper mental health care. The stories told here are honest, lived experiences. We will be dealing with tough subjects like self-harm, suicidal ideation, and prejudices. It is my hope that in exploring these stories, it inspires others to combat the social stigmas and barriers to mental health. I am Janet Peavy, and I thank you for your attention. Joining us today is Ellen Wonder. She is the Director of Clinical Services at Laurel Ridge Treatment Center in the Acute Care Children's Units. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we're talking about barriers to getting mental health care. What are some of the big themes that you see as Director of Clinical Services? Yeah, I think there are kind of three big areas that I see in accessing mental health. Um, One of the largest ones is just um, insurance related. How do people pay for their mental health? Uh, The second area that I see is the stigma and some of the cultural things around accessing mental health. Um, People don't want to admit that maybe they need to get help. They don't want people to judge them about their getting help. And then just some cultural things. People come from cultural backgrounds that there may be a distrust in the health community in general, or um, that people just don't believe that mental health really is an issue um, within, within their cultural and historical backgrounds. So I see that as being another issue. And then there are some just logistical things around accessing mental health. Um, If you don't have a car and you can't drive from, say, somewhere in an outlying county into San Antonio to see a psychiatrist, that can be a real issue. And these things actually do happen. How do we get people back and forth? Um, or you live out in an area where there just really is no mental health and to access that would mean quite a long drive for you. So some of those logistical things can also present very real problems for people. So let's tackle the first one, insurance issues. What type of insurance issues do you see? Well, you see uninsured. So there Mm. are people that simply don't have access to um, a means to pay. So there's that group of people, mm-hmm. then people that there is, and there's always been a big push for this. There's no parity in how we pay for healthcare as opposed to how we pay for, say, diabetes or heart disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so with heart disease, we don't limit that to five visits to your doctor and then you're finished. Um, regardless. Mm-hmm whether we've resolved the issue or not. So there's some of those issues within within um, the insurances that do carry health care. Do we really have adequate coverage for those people? Um, so those are two of the bigger issues that I see within the insurance is, and then what do they cover? Um, for example, in the child and adolescent world, we see that uh, that someone will have a product that covers acute stays, but there's nothing covered beyond that um, other than outpatient providers. So we can't put them into day programs or we can't put them into long-term programs when it may be clinically indicated that that's what they need. 
So within those products, we also see some issues. And talk to me a little bit about what you see, because that sounds like it's bringing up differences um, between people that have private and um, government issued healthcare coverage. What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So what you see within the private coverage with um, products that are private is that they'll pay um, for things beyond just outpatient providers or acute care, hospital acute care. They'll pay for day programs. They'll pay for residential programs. Um, and then you'll see within those the Medicaid products that it just ends at the acute care and some outpatient coverage. So um, very different in what we can, can recommend when we're recommending a care after you've been in a hospital. Very, very different stuff. But clinically, that may not be the best decision just to send them to outpatient providers. But we also don't want to have it be onerous for families that, you know, we recommend a residential, but they just can't pay for that and um, would be in debt for years and years to come. So we have to kind of, you know, balance the clinical part with what what's realistic in terms of what people can afford. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, and when we're talking about government issued um, insurance coverage, if they even have that, that mostly affects families that are um, underserved and underprivileged. Mm-hmm. And it's a well-established, um, you know, there's lots and lots of research talking about how underserved and underprivileged families often have more um, trauma associated with their care. Um, there's generational trauma, there's um, poverty-related trauma, things like that. So if anything, they would be the ones that would, you know, not like you want to generalize, but they, they would be more needing of some of these um, stepped-up care services that you're talking about, like residential. Right, that is correct. So um, the next one that you talked about was, um, talk to me a little bit about what that looks like with the the next issue. So I think we talked about just some of the cultural issues around um, health Mm -hmm. on seeking care. And when you look at those, what you're really seeing is that in spite of all the strides that we've made, that we're still, there's still a stigma that's attached to um, seeking mental health care. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of that embarrassment around um, that somehow it's a character flaw. Somehow I failed to just manage my problems and manage my emotions. And if you just would um, suck it up and mm-hmm. try harder, that you would have better luck. And so that I think that still prevails. I believe that you know people are hesitant to let people know that they have a mental health issue that they really Mm -hmm. need to get some additional help on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's not even, I mean, there's certainly cultures that we've seen where that's more of an issue, but um, there's also a general societal stigma against getting mental health care. Yes, there still is that societal stigma and that societal stigma is um, where we can do 
dig in and do some education and um, try to help people to understand that this really can be biologically based, that these, mm -hmm. you know, the things that people are dealing with are real issues um, mm -hmm. that they struggle with. So um, I think that's where social workers and people that work in mental health can really start to make some strides. Yeah. And that's kind of an all encompassing issue as well, because it's not just the patient that's affected, particularly when you're talking about children's acute care. Um, the families have to buy into this as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So what you'll find within families is um, a child will have a mental health issue. For example, mm -hmm. they will be feeling depressed and they may exhibit that by being withdrawn or tearful or not wanting to go to school or a whole variety of different behavioral things will be exhibited. And the parents don't understand that the, the genesis of that is actually depression. So mm -hmm. parents will sort of focus on that behavioral piece of it. And, um, and not be able to dig a little bit deeper and look at what are the underlying issues or the driving issues to those behaviors. So we have to do a lot of work with parents around understanding what mental health looks like, understanding what anxiety looks like, understanding how it looks different with a teenager as opposed to a child. So we're also having to look at some of the um, developmental stages uh, mm -hmm. when we're talking with families. So um, those are some of the challenges that we have when treating children and adolescents. Yeah. And sometimes the families themselves have a diagnosis and they may or may not be diagnosed. How does that affect the aftercare for those children? That's a great question. So Part of our challenge as providing care in the hospital is we do have to send them home to their families. And a lot of times, you know, there is a genetic component and there are some um, family dynamic components that we may be sending children home to families that they themselves are struggling. So we have to make sure that we are addressing that and um, in the bigger picture, kind of that bigger that layer that's over just addressing what's going on with the patient. And that would be just having parents identify that maybe they could seek mental health um, services, having parents understand the dynamics between themselves and the child and that family therapy may be needed in order to look at some of those family dynamics and how they can better support their child. What kind of wording do they use? What do you do when you have these behaviors? What do you do when a child doesn't want to go to school? So a lot of those things also need to be addressed because if you send a child home and they're going back to a situation that's not supportive of their mental health, you're going to have, you're going to have some issues. Okay. Thank you. And the third um, item that you brought up was just really in terms of logistics and getting children to the care that they need. They may live in a rural area. They may not have access. They may not have transportation. So what does that look like for those kids? Well, it looks like there's some good news in here. So I yeah. think 
um, one of the one of the outcroppings of the pandemic, the uh-huh. COVID pandemic, was that we do a lot more telehealth now. Mm-hmm. So there's that's opened up new access for especially people that are in rural areas. So we are able to make sure that they have access. Um, you know, in a perfect world, we would be able to provide transportation with facilities where they have to go and and some facilities are able to do that but i think moving forward we're going to look more and more at telehealth for mm-hmm. families that cannot easily access health care well that's that's good that's promising um so one of the things that we've seen particularly since well not just since the pandemic well before that as well is the effect of mental illness and suicidal ideations on the LGBTQIA community. What kinds of things do you see in this arena? Well, um, you know, this is a very high risk group of people, especially within the child and adolescent population. And I think the message that we need to get out um, in order to help these people deal with um, is the societal impact um that is foisted upon them really so Mm -hmm. it's not that they have some sort of there's some sort of internal issue because you're lgbtq plus it's more how is society viewing them and the impact that that has and the the detrimental effects that society foists upon them because they're they're not accepting of them in many ways, and there's a lot of prejudice against this this particular group of people, which has a negative ha- impact on mental health. It can lead to anxiety. It can lead to depression. It can lead to suicide, um, mm-hmm. and that's been shown over and over in schools that they struggle with. These kids are suicidal oftentimes because of some of the bullying, some of the negative views of them. So I think we really have to start looking at how society views them and put the focus and the, you know, the onus on society to start to change some of their views and be more supportive of this group of of people. And that's actually an interesting um, piece of it that you brought up as well. So I think because in the past being LGBTQ plus, Um, people used to think that that in itself was a mental disorder. And we now have biologic proof that that's just not the case. Right. But when they're viewed as having a disorder just because of their orientation, that puts a whole different level of pressure on them. Uh, Yes, I agree with that completely. So it's sort of, um, I mean, the way that you can frame it is, is, is this an internal issue with these, people or is it an external issue with the society Mm -hmm. and society's views of them and um, how do we again how do we make sure that um, those external forces are being dealt with because because they really it it can impact a person's self-identity a lack of acceptance a lack of support systems and those are all external things those are that is not a mental health issue, but it can lead to mental health issues if you don't have any support or if your parents have kicked you out of the house because you identify 
as being part of the LGBTQ plus community. So, so those are really, you know, heavy impacts on people um, that, that are trying to grow up and figure out who mm -hmm. they are and, and what their value systems are going to be. Um, so again, I go back to, I, I put it squarely on society to start to be more supportive of those, those communities. So if you, I mean, I realize this is a very broad question, but mm -hmm. where would you start fixing some of these societal issues that we have that are really blocking access to mental health care? Okay, that's a loaded question. It is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I have a social work background. So mm -hmm. what I would say that it starts, it starts in the home, it starts in the schools, it starts mm -hmm. in um, the churches and mm -hmm. starts with acceptance. Mm -hmm. so, so even if you belong to a community that struggles to recognize, um, the LGBTQ plus community, um, mm -hmm. you can, you can still be supportive of them and you can still be accepting in, in ways such as, you know, that this is a biological basis, that this is not a character flaw. We can't pray the gay away. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that we can support people in, in these things just by, by not being judgmental mm -hmm. and critical, not putting it on to the LGBTQ plus community to just, you know, power through it. And that comes with very broad things such as we accept everybody. We accept them for who they are, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of what they wear, regardless of all that they bring to the table, we are accepting. And that message has to start very early mm -hmm. because biases are very hard to break once they've been formed in a child. So I think just, early on in and that that happens across the board in your home in your school in your church um and that we can be supportive of them thank you and the other thing that i think people need to be aware of is words and word choices mm -hmm. matter so mm -hmm. it's not enough to say that you're accepting if you're saying things like i love you but Right. Right. Because my experience has been that the, your truth is going to come after the word, but so, yeah. um, so I, I think one of the ways that we can approach this on an individual basis is I love you. And how can I help you? What mm -hmm. did you need from me? Tell me what that was like for you. I'm sorry that happened to you. How can I support you? Those are all things where we ask the person who's going through a situation, how can we help you? You get to be the informant. You get to be the one to tell me what I can do. While I'm also teaching tolerance um, to other people, I can turn to a person, a member of the LGBTQ plus community or any other community um, that has been marginalized and say, what is it? Teach me help me to understand what you need and I'll support you in that. 
That's beautiful. I think that's a message more people need to hear is the effect of their words on um, people that are suffering like this. And lastly, talk to me a little bit about how you um, come alongside somebody who is suffering from suicidal thoughts. How do you go about supporting them? How do you go about talking with them or even recognizing the signs that they might need extra help? Yeah. So I think recognizing the signs is just educating yourself. If you think there's a problem, start to educate yourself on what am I seeing? What's different in this person than what I saw a week ago or a month ago? And, and then educate yourself. What does, it, what does depression look like? What does it look like in a little child versus a teenager versus an adult? Um, mm -hmm. And seeing some of those things, for example, with people that are depressed, am I seeing in an adolescent withdrawal from social situations? Um, changes in sleeping, sleeping more, sleeping less, changes in eating, eating more, eating less, um, not engaging the way that they used to engage, grades are dropping. So mm -hmm. start to see those things. Don't be afraid to have that conversation. Get, get comfortable with using words like, are you depressed? Have you ever had suicidal thoughts? Because if you can have those conversations in a non-judgmental way, so you're not, you're not putting any judgment on it at all. You're just trying to gather information. You can gather that information and then make a determination. Is this person having a mental health issue? And if the answer is yes, I think they are, you can always seek help. There's plenty of things online that you can look at to just get that information and where you can go for help. You can look at your insurance if you have it and who might be a good mental health provider, a therapist. If they need a psychiatrist, the therapist can help with that. So seek help. You're, one thing about mental health, um, it can get very lonely. So you wanna seek help so that you don't mm -hmm. feel like you're carrying the burden by yourself or for someone else if you're a family member. And you wanna make sure that you get out there and get that help. Um, but it starts with a conversation. And importantly, a non-judgmental conversation that's really just um, an information gathering conversation. Thank you. And I think one of the things you mentioned is, in fact, one of the barriers that we see sometimes too. So actually using the words, um, are you depressed? Are you having suicidal thoughts? Those can be scary to people because... I think what we've seen, at least in the public sphere, is that a lot of people are afraid of using those words mm -hmm. because they're afraid they might put those ideas into somebody's head. Yeah, um, so there's a couple of things on that. It, I don't think you put ideas in people's heads that don't already have that idea in their head. So if they're feeling mm -hmm. suicidal and they've had those thoughts and, they, and you ask them about it, you're not putting an idea in their head. And if they haven't had those thoughts, I don't think you can all of a sudden instill those thoughts in their head and then all of a sudden they're suicidal. So I think having those open conversations and NAMI supports that um, mm -hmm. mental health providers support having those open conversations. So I, I think you do have to have those conversations um, if you're not comfortable having them and you mm -hmm. don't, you're not comfortable using those words with someone, if you have to have that difficult conversation find someone who is. Okay. 
that's really good advice. And then the last thing you mentioned in that comment was the fact that if you're coming alongside somebody who is facing a mental health crisis, that you might actually need support as well. Yeah, so self-care and support um, if you are part of a family or a part of a group where you're supporting someone in a mental health, remember that um, you have to take care of yourself. That's important. And self-care is not just bubble baths and, um, you know, watching a fun movie or something. It's really about the idea that you think well enough of yourself and you understand the importance of your role with another person who's struggling that you, you think it's important to take care of yourself. So that idea has to precede what you actually do to take care of yourself. Um, whether that's going for a run, whether that's a bubble bath, but, but, mm -hmm. but the point of this is that you really have to understand that it's, a, you're important enough that you also need to be healthy and you as a healthy person then can be a better support and understanding that role. I think that's great advice. Thank you. Is there anything else you think people need to know in terms of seeking mental health care? Yeah, I just think being able to have those open, honest conversations, whether it be with yourself or whether it be with someone that you trust is being able to say, hey, something's not right here. And I'm not really sure even what it is, or maybe you are sure and just getting that support system in place so that so that you have someone to talk to so that you don't suffer in silence or in isolation and because those that doesn't work very well um, mm -hmm. and then have that support in place and 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 seek care if needed you know and have someone that can help you overcome those barriers that we talked about and how do we get the best care that we possibly can get given that we might have some barriers. Um, but, but just being willing to, to talk about it really is the very first step. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking all the time to talk with us this morning. I know you're really busy. So thank you for the graciousness of your time today. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it.